0: Church family, has the Lord been good to you? Amen. Amen. He's been good. Amen. is good. He's still good. I want to start today by saying that there's a population, a segment of men my age, somewhere around huh, that looked up to and wanted to be at some point in time as cool as Sean Connery. Yeah. Yeah. The, let me tell you what, the ladies are laughing, but I'm telling you, they would have wanted it too. I'm telling you, dude was slick. He was suave. If Y'all don't know who J- How many of you have no idea who Sean Connery is? <laughs> uh, yeah. Bless your heart. Okay. We're scrapping the message. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, listen. Sean Connery was the second James Bond uh, back in the 60s and 70s, okay? Uh, He was uh, probably one of the most recognized actors of the day. And it is not a joke to say that at some level, every dude who saw him on the screen wanted to be Sean Connery. I mean, he was just that cool. He was just that suave and debonair, and all of that kind of stuff. But you know, they asked him in a in an interview uh, years and years ago. He was uh, he was age sixty two. He was he was still acting at that point. He gave him a, he gave a uh, a um, an interesting reply to a question. He said, "The reason why I like to be an actor." Even though he had done all of this producing and directing and all of these kinds of things, he says, the reason why I come back to being an actor is because I get to be somebody better and more interesting than I am. Now, now here's all these guys, and we're, we're like, no, no, we're looking at you, right? Because we want to be better and, and, and greater than we are. And yet you're saying the same thing. Uh, and listen, there's a lot of people in this world still today, who probably feel like Sean Connery did at that moment. Their lives aren't all that they could be. Uh, They aren't as as good as they should be. Something is missing from their lives uh, that even a, a glamorous acting role can't fulfill. Only Christ can make a person's life what it could be, what it can be, what it should be, and what it must be. So today we're continuing our series called Sunday's Coming, where we're looking at Easter and the lasting effects of those who believe. Last week we looked back at the empty tomb and remembered that it is full of hope for those who believe. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are divine realities with immeasurable implications for us. One of which we're going to talk about today is the abundant life that is available to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And for all of us here today, that's really good news, in part because many of us live feeling as though there is something more. There's something missing. We spend enormous amounts of time, energy, and money trying to locate that proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. (coughs) What we learn in Christ is that and abundance of life isn't measured in acres, it isn't measured in bank accounts, and it isn't, it isn't measured in abilities. Don't get me wrong, those things are great. Uh, they can definitely make life more interesting. But fullness and abundance of life are not found in things, but in a person. Or to put it more precisely, abundance is found in the life, the death, and the resurrection. Jesus Christ, who traded his life for ours. And when I think of what the abundant life looks like or what it might feel like, I'm often drawn back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis, where there's a world before sin, and it's briefly described, as, as one author puts it, he says, when we read about the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, we can't help but feel drawn to its beauty and its abundance and innocence. It must have been wonderful to live in such a pristine environment with every need being met, to experience an intimate marriage full of delight in each other, and to have a satisfying sense of purpose in ruling over God's creation together. Imagine for a moment every single need that you have being met. A fully delightful and intimate, wonderful, perfect marriage. Working together with your spouse, unhindered, unashamed. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 says both man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Insert your own punchline right here. Okay, I'll go ahead and do one. Now you're laughing. It's okay. It's all right. But think about it. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no suffering. There's no anxiety. There's no worrying about the bills. There's no worrying about anything because there's nothing literally to worry about. But as we all know, the garden didn't last. Sin entered the story along with every horrible atrocity and pain that humankind could inflict on one another. There was no way for us to work our way back to God, no matter how hard we tried, and there was always something missing. That's when Jesus enters the story. Did we welcome him as a king? Did we treat him with hospitality and generosity, as we should a weary traveler? Did we make him feel at home? Obviously, the answer is no, but even worse. We humiliated him in the most vile and horrible way, and left him to die alone on a Roman cross. Yet somehow, even after all of that, Jesus was willing to trade his life for ours. He was willing to experience the pain, the humility, the agony that so many turn to, uh, so that so that so many will turn to him to experience redemption. To Experience reconciliation and fullness of life. We treated him like a criminal and he loved us like family. But you know, the kingdom of heaven, that one thing that Jesus was always talking about, is vastly different than the world you and I live in right now. As far as we can tell from passages like the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew chapters 5 through 7, And throughout the parables of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is completely opposite to this world. Think about this one short passage from Matthew chapter 6 that is going to be the basis for what we're going to wrap everything around this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, it says this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, earthly treasure isn't the same thing as kingdom treasure. Or to put it another way, what's valuable here on earth has no value in heaven. So if that's true, then what does the abundant life look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? If abundance in the kingdom doesn't necessarily mean acres, accounts, and abilities, then what does it mean? What is the fullness of life? I think there are actually a lot of ways to answer this question because the abundant life in Christ has to do with things like forgiveness, reconciliation, joy, love. In fact, I think we find these things written out for us in Scripture in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, as we read about the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And you know, throughout the centuries, most of humankind has agreed that these are unbelievably valuable things. But for today, I want us to consider what the abundant life looks like as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And as we discussed last week, the empty tomb is full of hope for those who believe. And this week, we recognize that that empty tomb is a sign of resurrection and eternal life for us. The abundant life is eternal life with Jesus Christ. It's being with Him always and forever. So that's the first thing that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at eternal life. As many of you know, as we read in John three sixteen, God gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God the Father restored our relationship with Him through the sacrifice and resurrection of His Son. And for those who believe, this means through Jesus We have the hope of eternal life. And what exactly does that life look like? Well, here are a couple of insights that we can look at from the New Testament. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 says this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to pray a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Apparently, Jesus is preparing an eternal room for you within his Father's house. But the question is that many of us probably have, what does it look like? What does it look like? The passage doesn't give us any indication about that, however... What's interesting is that we do get a glimpse of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, and if the room is anything like this city that we're going to read about, it's going to be pretty amazing. Like it—it's like no Motel Six, Hilton, Double Day, even with the chocolate chip cookies, Double Tree, Double Day. I was watching baseball yesterday, Abner double day. That's what I got. Double tree. I'll be all right. I promise. It all kind of swirls together. It's okay. Listen, it's like no Ritz Carlton you've ever seen in your life. Heaven is going to be something extraordinary. Revelation chapter 21, verses 15 through 21 says this. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure this city, its gates and its walls. Now, first of all, just stop right there for a second. If you're looking at building a house and somebody's paying for it for you and the contractor comes out and he starts measuring the land that he's going to put it on and he starts measuring how tall the walls are going to be with a golden measuring tape, oh, church is going to get good. It's going to get good because if he's using gold to just measure it and make his markings... He's got something better for us. Verse 16, the city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadium. its Length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. Are you starting to see a picture here? God is using every single precious gem, some of them we haven't seen on this earth, for Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But God is using all of them to build this place. Verse 21, the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each gate was made out of a single pearl. Woo, that's a big pearl, right? The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Sounds like an amazing place to live. Amen? Amen. Pure gold, emerald, sapphire, topaz, pearls, and that just begins to describe the walls and the city. In any event, this is is a description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and it sounds like an unbelievable place. Now, I want to share with you something this morning. Tori and I have been married for 23 years, and... Probably, uh, we we take little weekend getaways and stuff like that. We've been to the... Last year, we got the opportunity to go to uh, Bryson City, stayed in a cabin. uh, Cabin. place was a palace. Um, It was gorgeous. It was really nice, and and we got a deal on it. It was so nice. I didn't want to leave, right? You're overlooking the mountain. That was was one of those special times that we get. Tori and I, through ministry and all the work and stuff like that, we do... Usually we take little weekend trips or some of the some of the best places we've lived. We, we've gone to um, we've been to Washington, D.C. We've been to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, that was pretty much it, wasn't it? And, le- and let me tell you, let me tell you how we got to go to those. They got to tag along with me because I had to go for work. So it wasn't really a vacation. But let me tell you, for the first time in 23 years, tori and i in august are going on a cruise and we're excited and let me tell you we we don't we don't even we're just excited to be going on the cruise. it's not like we don't have a balcony we don't have a view of anything we're at the bottom of the ship right in the middle we get to stare at walls and each other for four days and we couldn't be more excited. And let me tell you, we have been looking forward to this. We, we, have, we have gone through Amazon shopping lists and all of this kind of stuff, trying to prepare ourselves. Do you, I don't know if any of you have ever been on a cruise before, but apparently magnets and towel clips are like gold, right? Because most of the walls are made out of metal and you can hang things and all this kind of stuff. I've got, I've got more bags of, of magnet hooks and towel clips in my house right now than I know what to do with. But listen, we're so excited about it. Th- this thing ain't happening for four more months. But we are so excited to get to go that we've been we've been in anticipation. We booked this thing. We, it, was our, it was our anniversary gift. Uh, our anniversary is December 23rd. Yeah, what were you thinking? Hey, I got off easy, right? Her birthday's February 22nd. It's like Valentine's Day and her birthday just rolled up into one. I, 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 God knew what He was doing, right? But listen to me. We, we did this as an anniversary gift to ourselves uh, because we'd never experienced anything like that before. We've never, we've neither one of us has ever been on a cruise. Barely been on the water. My daddy built a wooden fishing boat that barely held him and me, and we used to go fishing on the lake on. And, and, and listen, but we are so looking forward to this thing. We've been through all kinds of YouTube videos and all this kind of stuff. And listen, if you want to run down a rabbit hole that you may not get out of for about two weeks, just look up cruise prep on YouTube. And I'm telling you, there are so many videos, it will make your head swim. But we are so excited about the opportunity just to get to go and to just be with each other. Right? And just spend some time with each other. Something that we haven't really been able to do, just the two of us, in a very, very long time. So you can imagine, and I'm sure that, that some of you have had the same feelings when you've gotten ready for a trip to go somewhere. You, you've, you've done all the preparation and all of these kinds of things. You've gotten excited about it, all of that. How much more should we be excited about the destination that lies in wait for us? Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're going somewhere that we can't even imagine. We can't even imagine what those... I want to walk up to somebody and say, listen, will will you show me what sardonyx is? Because I have no idea. I've Googled it, I can't find it. Just show me what it looks like. I can't wait to get there. We already know our eternal destination. And for that reason, we can lay arrest rest. Any anxiety that this life has about death. We can experience true life, abundant life, content life, peaceful life here and now on this earth because of the hope that we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have eternal life that should help us to have this abundant life. But I want to talk about abundant contentment for just a moment. Now in just a couple of weeks, we're going to start a study on Sunday mornings for two weeks through Proverbs chapter 30. And most of you know 31, right? We talk about our wives and and, uh, and, and what that looks like, right? What a godly wife, what a godly woman looks like. But just one chapter before is a prayer by a man named Agur. He's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only writing that we have of his in chapter 30 of Proverbs. And there is a prayer that he prays within that chapter where he asks God, God, make me neither rich nor poor. Because if you were to make me rich, then God, I might forget about you. And if you were to make me poor, then I might dishonor you so that I may just survive. He asked God to give him exactly what he needs for that day. Now, when a lot of people think about the abundant life, they think it means a lot of stuff or they have what they desire, but that's not what being content in life really means. Maybe you've heard somebody talking about having Jesus. More specifically, you've likely heard people say that they have Jesus when they have more than enough, right? What you're hearing is people describing this abundant Commitment, contentment. Excuse me, that they experience in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this exclusively in the New Testament. Um, but one of my favorite passages comes from Second Corinthians chapter six, verses three through ten. It says this: it "says We are not giving anyone an occasion for offense, so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance." By afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God. Through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Through the glory and dishonor. Through the slander and the good report. Regarded as deceivers yet true. As unknown yet recognized. As dying yet see we live. As being disciplined but not killed. As grieving yet always rejoicing. As poor yet enriching many. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Pastor Tony, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about through every trial, through every beating, through every riot, through every arrest, through every jail sentence, through everything that he has been put through because of the name of Jesus Christ that he was so willing to preach, he counts it as joy. Every hardship. Everything that he's gone through, told, testified against, as liars, yet everything being true, as dying, yet still living, as being disciplined but not killing, as grieving but always rejoicing. But it's that last part, it's that last part that gets me. He said, having nothing, but possessing everything. Only a person who is truly and deeply satisfied can talk like that. Elsewhere, Paul says, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. As he describes a life of generosity and giving through Jesus. You see, for Paul and so many others who are truly content, Jesus is everything that they need. The abundance of their lives rests in the reality of their relationship with Him. The deeper the relationship, the more abundant their life is. What we learn in Christ is that abundance of life isn't measured in acres, in accounts, or in abilities. We learn that fullness and abundance of life Aren't found in those things, but they're found in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's something else that I want to talk about before we close today, and that is the hindrance of abundant living, the hindrances of, of abundant lending uh, living, excuse me. In 2 Kings, there's a commander of the army of Aram, second in charge, His name is Naaman. Now Naaman had a skin disease, and he makes his way to Israel hoping to see Elisha. And hoping that Elisha is going to do some grand theatrics or some wondrous thing for his disease to be healed. But I want you to look at, with me at what happens in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. It says, Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Now, first of all, Naaman wants to come and see Elisha. But what does Elisha do? He sends somebody else. He sends a messenger and tells him to go wash himself in the Jordan seven times. Verse 11, But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself, he'll surely come out. Stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure this skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farper, the the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? He's comparing. He's like, why do I want to get washed in this muddy river called the Jordan? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you to wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God, and his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Now, listen to me. Elisha sends his messenger to Naaman instead of going to himself instead of going himself. Think about this from Naaman's point of view. There's no royal entourage. There's no red carpet being rolled out. The man that you've come to see is not even coming to see you. And by the way, that was customary in that day for a man who had leprosy. Because that's what this skin disease was. The writer doesn't interpret Elisha's actions, but surely this act was a bit humbling to Naaman. Had to be humbling. But if this didn't humble Naaman, then Elisha's instructions certainly did. In fact, they disturbed him. Naaman anticipated a faith healing event like the waving of a hand, an incantation, and boom, his leprosy is gone. But that's not what happens. Elisha tells him to go into the Jordan and watch seven times. Elisha treated this man like the leper he was who needed to be healed. And Naaman didn't like that. He didn't like that. But listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, has to humble us. It has to humble us. And bring us down to where we understand that there is no other option for living this life than living it through the blood, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's where the abundant life comes from. There's no cultural assumptions. There's no pride involved. It all comes down to Jesus and Naaman is being humbled in this account do you know that most of the hindrances to abundant living they live in us they live in us Naaman discovered that such was the case for his own life. God had provided the means by which he was going to be healed. He was going to be cured of his leprosy. But Naaman's attitude proved to be the greatest hindrance in his life. The greatest hindrance to his abundant living. And do you know that there are certain hindrances that still prevent us from enjoying life as faithfully as possible? Number one, excessive pride. Thinking that we can do it better than God. Or, or, or simply stated, not giving God what He deserves at all. Giving Him no thought whatsoever. And just living your own life. But can I tell you, there's another side to pride that a lot of us miss out on. And a lot of us struggle with. And that is being so low. And so depressed. And so anxiety ridden and so deep in the darkest place that you can think of that you think, God can't do anything for me. He won't see me. He can't love me like I am. How prideful of us to think that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who created you and died for you and rose again for you can't get over what you're going through. We think that God can't do what we need him to do. You know what else will kill the abundant life? A jealous spirit. A jealous spirit. A deceitful heart. Love of strife. Can I I just be really honest with you? Never understood how somebody could love causing as much damage as they possibly could until I got around a bunch of middle school girls. Y'all, y'all laugh, but there, but there's girl, there's young ladies in here in high school and middle school who are sitting there going, "Yep, I know exactly what Pastor Tony is talking about. They just love to cause junk." Can I tell you, that'll cut you off from an abundant life. And if you let those young ladies get to you, or you let people in your life who want to cause you strife get to you, then it's cutting you off from an abundant life as well. Remember how we started this sermon in Matthew chapter six? I'd like to pull that up again and go a little bit further. Just go a little bit further. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp for the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep that darkness. Now, before we go on to verse 24, can I just share? Can I just show this to you for one moment? What God is saying here, what Jesus is speaking here, God on earth is saying to the people who are around Him, what you let into your life will be what your life is. If you're looking and hearing, And thinking about things that are not of God. I'm telling you they will destroy you from the inside out, church family. I'm not sitting here today to tell you that I'm going to start meddling in your life. That is not what I'm telling you to do. But I'm telling you right now, I know the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is putting something on your heart right now that needs to get out of your life because it's dragging you down. There is something in our lives that continues to drag us down and pull us away. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you're letting good things into your heart, into your life, into your eye, then that light is going to shine within you. But if not, that darkness, oh, that darkness, will rot you from the inside out. Why? Verse 24 because no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But listen, you can substitute a lot of stuff in here for money. You cannot serve God and yourself. There is a throne in your life. And either God sits on that throne or you do. But it's not a double seater, it's not a side by side. It doesn't work that way. It's either God or you. You cannot serve God. And relationships. You can have godly relationships through Jesus Christ. But if your relationships become your God, that's an idol. And you cannot serve both. You cannot serve God and success. God can give you success. He can bless you with success. But if you're chasing after this success and you're not chasing after God, and God is not on the throne. You cannot serve God and anxiety. You cannot serve God and fear. You cannot serve God and this culture. You cannot serve God and whatever the next woke thing is that's going to come down the line. I, I have I have this thing. I'm sorry. I'm gonna chase a rabbit here for just a second. I get asked all the time, and I have other pastors who ask me all the time, what do you think about this? What do you think about this political thing? What do you think about this cultural thing? I said, God is still on the throne. And if I keep my eyes on Jesus, then he's going to make sure that I know exactly where I should stand with all of this stuff. I don't need to watch the news. I don't need to read reports. All I need to do is read the Bible. And if I read the Bible and I commit myself to God, He's going to show me what I need to do. I'm not worried about all of these things. I'm not worried about the alphabet crew and whatever numbers and letters and pluses and signs and symbols they're putting on the end of the name this week. It does not matter. God said it is sin. It's sin. That does not keep me from loving that person. Because I love them enough to tell them the truth of the wonderful God who shed his blood for me and changed my life, made me new. You have to submit to God. You have to give God the throne. You have to surrender your life. But listen to me, Naaman eventually submitted to the prophet's words. His servants tell him that instead of scoffing at the message, he should rejoice in the simplicity and the experience of the promise of responding by faith. And by God's grace, when we read the rest of the conversation, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except for Israel. Therefore, please accept this gift from your servant. You see, Naaman's skin wasn't the only thing that was changed. He was changed from the inside out. What an awesome confession of faith and a change of heart. Naaman confesses that Yahweh alone is God. And he calls himself a servant of Elisha. And finally, he wants to give an offering as a sign of his love and his loyalty. As we close our time today, church family. There are three people, three kinds of people in this room right now. You're living the abundant life. You're sold out to God. You're walking with Him. You're you're experiencing Him every day through, through Bible study, reading His Word, allowing Him to talk to you, and through prayer as you communicate with Him. You're experiencing the abundant life. Not everything is perfect. Not everything is wonderful. But you have hope because of the empty tomb. That no matter what you go through, everything's going to be fine. That's the first group of people. If you're there, God bless you. You're welcome to check out for the rest of the service. (laughs) Second group of people. People who love Jesus Christ, believe in him, surrender to him but they are not experiencing the abundant life. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That we are to gaze at Jesus and glance at the world. But we get that backwards sometimes. We start gazing at the world and we only glance at Jesus every now and then. I wanna encourage you this morning That living the abundant life means living in the fullness and the understanding that we know that God has something greater for us, not just when we're done with this world, but right here, right now, as soon as we walk out of these doors here today. God has something wonderful and great for us. And if you can't see it, then stop for a second, take a deep breath, and look around at all of the blessings that God has put in your life. They're there. I promise you, they're there. But we run so fast that sometimes we run right by them and we take them for granted. And then there's a third group of people. And I want to submit to you this morning that if you're in this group of people, you desire the abundant life. You desire these things. You want the hope that we've been talking about this morning and for the past few weeks. But listen to me, it only comes through surrender to Jesus Christ. It's the only way you're going to experience the abundant life. You can't serve God in yourself. You can't serve God in success. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in your relationships. You serve God and God will give you the blessings of your life when you keep your eyes fixed on him. It's the only way it happens. How do, why do I need that? Why do I need a life with Jesus? It's very simple because of what we talked about in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. There was no shame until sin entered the world. And the first thing they did, do you know the first thing they did? When they realized, when they ate that fruit, sin entered into their mind. Do you know the first thing they did? They felt shameful because they were naked and they stitched leaves together to cover themselves up. We live in sin, and we need a Savior, a perfect Savior, who came and paid that price for each and every one of us. He came and paid that price for us. It's a price that we couldn't pay. We had two people experience it this morning in the newness of life a picture of the death and burial of Jesus Christ being raised in new life, being resurrected. And that's a picture of their life now as well, who they were before in their old sinful ways, but then they were buried in their transgressions and raised again in the newness of life that is given to us through Jesus Christ. So what do I do? I want the abundant life. I realize that I need Jesus because he saved me because of my sins all you have to do is surrender say god amen i don't know who that was but i'm preaching you can preach next week it'll be fine but let me finish first hey the most important thing that we can do the most important decision that we will ever make is surrendering to god not believing James chapter 4 tells us the demons believe and they tremble. We believe and look at God with arrogance. We have to surrender. God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need you. I need you. Surrender to him and let him take your Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us together, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings that we've had in here today, Lord. Thank you for your spirit moving. Thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord. And I pray the abundant life over everybody who is within the sound of my voice today, whether in this room, on the internet, doesn't matter where. Lord, I pray that they would have a desire, a burning in their heart, for the things of God to live an abundant life through Jesus Christ, to be content in their life. Father, we thank you. We love you. We give you all praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name, amen.